Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. We, uh, we just heard, we just sang that salvation comes from the Lord, right? That it belongs to the Lord, that, the God, that God is the giver of salvation. And if I could summarize what we've seen over the last five weeks, it is, it's found at the end of Psalm chapter 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the one that gives it. He's the one that sustains it. And our hope for life and for godliness and for living out the life that He's called us to live doesn't come from us, it comes from God. Right? That God has to, to give that life and to sustain us in that life and that He has done that and, and will do that and is doing that through Jesus. So we continue really in that sort of same theme this morning in a message that I've entitled Living Like Christ in a Broken World. Living Like Christ in a Broken World from Psalm chapter 6. Would you join me in reading the Word of God? For the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there's no mention of you in death in Sheol. Who will give thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will be suddenly ashamed. Would you pray with me? God, help us to comprehend this text this morning. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who we recognize is everywhere present, would be especially present in our midst and among your people, gathered as your church. Lord, hungry for a word from God. Hungry, God, that your, your healing and your salvation might be applied not only to us in the future, but in our present. God, help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it, it eventually happens to every single one of us. A bone-jarring, soul-shaking calamity comes our way. We pray for protection. We pray for the provider's protection. But suddenly, something happens, and it seems that divine protection becomes divine defection, and it, it tests our faith. A friend of mine, who was a chaplain, once put it this way, we are all either in a crisis, about to be in a crisis, or emerging from a crisis. A spouse is diagnosed with cancer, a young bride realizes she's now middle-aged and has been trying for years with no success. A son is diagnosed with a rare disease. A husband dies in the prime of his life, leaving a wife and young kids to carry on. A man loses his wife because she did what she vowed she would never do and she never came back. We sit down with the doctor and the moment that she says cancer, our world stands still and we can't breathe. The questions flood our minds faster than we can write them down. These, brothers and sisters, are the moments. These are the trials, the times, the seasons. When the enemy comes and he wants to steal and he wants to kill and he wants to destroy 
And they are the very moments to which Psalm 6 speaks. And I suggest and I believe, no doubt, they are the moments in which many of you are living this very hour. We live in a world that's broken by our sin. And the brokenness of the world can only be healed by the Savior who is strong enough to absorb our brokenness and ultimately heal it. That is really our hope, that Jesus has already lived out Psalm 6. He has been instructed, rebuked, chastised in going to the cross for us. And God has delivered Him. And His weeping en route to the cross has turned into confidence and assurance of victory forever because He's been risen from the grave. If we are in Christ, we will share in His sufferings, no doubt, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Yes, we will, we will identify with and share in His sufferings, but we have nevertheless been empowered to face adversity like Jesus faced the cross. So to live for Christ in a broken world, there's three things I believe this psalm shows us we must do. First, we must understand that God allows the pain of adversity to train us to long for His victory. Secondly, we must understand God's victory comes when death is overcome. And finally, we must trust that Christ will end our weeping and give us His victory. First, we must understand God allows the pain of adversity to train us to long for His victory. So often we see adversity as a sign of divine displeasure. Did I lose my child because of what I did in my past? What could I have done differently? Is God angry with me? These are the questions that come to our mind. And if we allow them to dominate our thinking, threaten to undermine our walk with Christ. David understands God is using his situation to rebuke and to chasten. Do you see those words in verse 1? But the, the words are words of instruction, rebuke denotes education and discipline as a result of God's judicial actions. And the whole world is under, in a sense, the judgment of God because it's been broken and distorted and twisted by sin. And that is the world. That is the wilderness in which we live. It rains on the just and the unjust. And David says, God, instruct me through this adversity, but don't do it in your anger. Chastening also denotes correction which results in education. In Leviticus 26.18, God promises Israel, I will chastise you seven times for your sins. The point is that there's coming a day when they will be perfectly chastised to be chastised no more because they are made His own through the blood and the atoning chastisement of Christ. In Jesus, we've been once for all chastised for our sins. That's the promise of Isaiah 53 Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Which raises this question, why this suffering? Because we still live in a world affected by and infected with sin. And God allows the adversities we face in this life to train our hearts to long for life everlasting. As he says in Hebrews 12, 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines or chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. His son was scourged in order that you could be received as his son or 
daughter. In other words, God has a chastening or an instruction for us that is not given in anger. It is not given in wrath. Do you see his prayer? Chasten me, rebuke me, but don't let it be in your anger. Don't let it be in your wrath. I, I am willing to learn your way, God. I am willing to long for your presence and to be cultivated, have my heart cultivated toward eternity, but don't let it be that you're angry with me. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the promise of God is that the anger of God against your sin has been already poured out and removed by the Messiah. The word anger means nostril or nose. And the word wrath means burning or consuming heat. But if you have given the totality of your life over to Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that God's nostril flaring anger against you and against your sin has already been extinguished in Jesus. So if there's a season of trial or temptation or adversity or heartache, you can rest assured if you belong to Christ that it is not in His anger. But there is something for you to learn. And this is good news indeed. The grace and healing for which David prays in verse 2 are found in Christ who took our brokenness to make us whole. Do you see the word there in verse 2? Pining away. David says... He's feeble. He's feeling extreme exhaustion as he faces the consequences of living in a broken world. Have you ever been exhausted? Have you ever been extremely frustrated? This is David. His circumstances are frustrating him. They are making him weary. He calls himself as one. He tells him he tells us that he's pining away. Jesus has already secured the end of our suffering through His cross, cross and resurrection. But until He comes again, we still face some of the adversity and the consequences of living in a broken world. So our sufferings, dear brothers and sisters, are not God's angry punishment for our sin, but an opportunity to cultivate a longing for the completion of God's victory. And we surely face adversity in this world. King David's entire body and soul are described as dismayed or troubled in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, his bones are dismayed. Where are the bones in your body? They're all over the place. By saying his bones are dismayed, he's saying my whole physical being feels like it's under attack. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a stressful situation or a situation where it's, it's everything's falling apart and it literally impacts you physically. It gets to your bones. That is what David is wrestling with here. And then he tells us in verse 3 that his soul is also dismayed. But it's not just dismayed. Do you see the word greatly there or abundantly? It's greatly dismayed. So his bones are aching, but there's something that's hurting worse than even his physical body. The only thing more, more troubling than the condition of his physical body is the anguish that he feels in his soul. You know, these words sound so much to me like those of another king, a, a greater king. A king who said when anticipating his death, now my soul has become troubled or dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour 
But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Even in your adversity, God has a purpose, a training purpose for it. That you can persist through it. That you can overcome it and show the world the divine enablement that you've received through the Holy Spirit. Applying to your heart what Christ did for you on the cross. Living in the brokenness of this world hurts. And it hurts badly. It devastates. It tests. But God allows us to face adversity so that we might be trained to long for the totality of God's deliverance. A deliverance that Jesus longed for on the way to the cross. A deliverance that He secured through the cross. How? Because He looked beyond the cross to the God that He knew, that He knew, that He knew, that He knew would deliver Him even from the grave. We can face the horrors of this fallen world with the same confidence that Jesus faced the horrors of the cross. And it's okay to ask, but you, O Lord, how long? Do you see that in verse 3? But you, O Lord, how long? So often we read that question and we say, well, that's a statement that undermines faith. It's a statement that's made without faith, but it's a statement made in great faith. Because when we say how long, we're acknowledging three things simultaneously. Three very important things. First, the effects of sin in this broken world are real. There's a whole bunch of religions out there that want you to either escape reality or deny reality. Buddhism, Hinduism, just pretend it doesn't exist. Just will myself to be better. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith acknowledges that this world is broken and that it hurts and that it causes us to fall and to stumble and that we get weak and we get tired and we get depressed. It acknowledges the very reality of all those things, but then it says there is a salvation available and it belongs to God who entered time and space to bring it to me. And though He has healed me and He's promised me a resurrection, Resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm still longing for that day. And from this day to that day, I live in this tension of I've already been saved, but I've not yet realized the full implications of that salvation. And there's this tension between two worlds of Jesus' first coming and His coming again. And we are a community of people who have a joy on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have a divine displeasure because we know God is bringing heaven down for us and we long for His deliverance. But you, O oh Lord, how long? How long? Secondly, if we're going to live like Jesus lived in a broken world, we must understand that God's victory comes when death is overcome. When death is overcome. The deliverance David seeks is more than a deliverance from problems. It's a deliverance from death. David doesn't simply pray to feel better, look better, act better, have more, worry less. He prays for God to save him. Do you see that in verse 4? The words rescue and save are words that indicate David is asking God to do something for him that he cannot do for himself. He's not like, God, I'm trying to save myself. Why don't you come help me save myself? It's all up to you, God. God, I need you to intervene in this situation. Save me. He is asking God to undo death, which means that God must turn, verse 4, or return and give us salvation from Sheol or the grave. He's got to turn from his anger. He's got to turn from his wrath. And so he sends Christ and pours out the wrath that we deserve so that he can turn to us and act in love and uh, abundant covenant faithfulness toward us. David prays against death because death is the enemy behind all other enemies. It threatens to undermine God's covenant faithfulness or His loving kindness. Do you see that in verse 4? He says in verse 4, 
return, O Lord, rescue my soul, save me. Why? Because of your loving kindness. The loving kindness of God indicates that He promises to be His people's God and to take care of them when they turn to Him. And David is basically saying... God is going to take decisive action or saving action. He's basically saying, what kind of God makes a covenant for everlasting blessing with His people and then leaves them dead in the grave? Who does that? And, and the answer is this. Not, not my God. Not our God. We serve a God who's good on His promises. We serve a God who can overcome even the grave. And we pray against death and the grave knowing that we have a God who entered into humanity and time and space. That He could rip life from the jaws of death and that He could grant us life everlasting. But there's another reason that death is the enemy of God and the covenant keeping God toward His people. Because death also keeps God's people from giving Him the praise or the thanks that He is due. Do you see that in verse 5? We were made... Some of you don't even know why you exist this morning. Let me, let me tell you why you exist. You exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why God made you. There's a whole lot of reasons that the world is throwing at you all the time for why you exist. It's that simple. You are made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's nothing more glorious, more powerful, more amazing than beholding the glory of God. And the only way you experience the glory of God is through Jesus Christ who came and gave Himself for you. That's why we're here at North Arnold Baptist Church. We have encountered Jesus. We live in a really messed up and broken world. And we know the King who makes it better. And He's healed us on the inside. But by golly, there's all sorts of brokenness in this world. And we are waiting for Him to come back. And we can fulfill forever the purpose for which we were made. That we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now where was I? You can't do that in the grave. He asks, in the grave or in Sheol, who's going to give you the thanks you deserve? Who's going to remember you there? Who's going to mention you there? Death is the seemingly irreversible condition that stands in the way of God's getting the glory He deserves and the good of our being able to fulfill our purpose, which is to give God the glory He deserves. God doesn't want you to get this, North Road. God doesn't want you to settle for a salvation that dies in death. Do you understand what I'm saying? So often the local church talks about lesser problems. And, and, and they're good problems to talk about. But the ultimate problem that the world faces is we're going to die. And so often it's like we want to talk about how to make your marriage better, how to make your finances better. Have you taken a Dave Ramsey course? Have you taken this course? We've got this topical study on this, 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 and this. We can solve all your problems. We might even be able to give you a new car or fix your tires or give you a tune-up. we got all this stuff that, that are the temporary problems of the world. And yes, those things get impacted and affected by sin. But notice what David does in the middle of his adversity. He prays against death. Because that's the real problem. What the world needs in the face of adversity more than anything else is to know that they can live even if they die. 
Not how to get out of debt, how to have a great marriage, how to win friends and influence people, how to have a great business. What good is it? Now, those are all good things, and the gospel has a relevance to all of those things. But what good is it if you die fat and rich and happy with a good business and a good marriage, if you die and you do not conquer death? David prays that you would conquer death, that you would not encounter the wrath and the fury, the hellfire fury of God against sin, because Jesus drank it down for you, and He overcame death for you. The hope we need is knowing that we can have life because God does not forsake His children. And He does not forsake any of those who run to God and say, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Heal me. And grant me your salvation and life everlasting in your kingdom. That is a prayer that God will always hear and He will always receive. And He will never forsake to give you the life that His Son came to purchase for you. We have a Savior who reverses the curse. He saves us from Sheol and He gives life out of the grave. And even in the midst of your darkest hour... That is really good news. But we do live in a broken world. We live in a tired world. We live in a busy world. We live in an exhausted world. And the reality is, some of you know the truths of point one and two. You, you know that God has given you victory. And, and you don't know how to handle the fact that sometimes you still feel the weight of the adversity of the world. Sometimes we, we gloss over problems as if they don't exist. How are you? Oh, I'm great. All on the inside, I'm, I'm just amazed. My bones are tired. They're hurting. But I'm, I'm a Christian, which means I'm great. You see, as those who've been given the Holy Spirit and commissioned to deny ourselves in this broken world and take up our cross, we know that sometimes we don't feel that great. And yet we know, just as Jesus didn't feel that great in the Gethsemane Garden, we know that we can live as Christ lived. Life comes with seasons of great adversity, and it is okay to acknowledge that seasons of adversity exist. If you get nothing else this morning, church, some of you need to have permission to say, I'm going through a valley. It's okay. But like Jesus, we look at this adversity, and we know that we will get through this adversity, not because of anything we can do, not because of any tip or trick or magical potion, but because God has come in the person of His Son and He's conquered death and victory is on the way. But it doesn't mean it does not hurt. David is weary. Verse 6. He's weary from sighing or groaning that comes from physical and mental distress. He is also weary with crying and grief. Literally, his vexation. He's cried so much that it's like his bed is flooded or his couch is dissolved by his tears. Now, oftentimes I'll hear people say, well, I take the Bible literally. Well, I do too. But David is not saying he literally dissolved his couch with his tears, right? What is he, what is he doing? It's a figure of speech. This is poetry. He's not saying that he literally dissolved his couch with his tears any more than I'm saying my eyes came out of their sockets onto this 
music stand if I say I cried my eyes out. The, the point is that David has been so consumed with depression and even a holy frustration with all that stands against him that he has cried a great deal. Even his eyes have become old, referring to the aging and the weakening of the eye. In Matthew 6, Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. The adversity and the opposition that David faces, even though he knows God, it seems to be taking his life. He finds that he is no match for this opposition. And guess what? Neither are you. You are no match for the trials and the adversity and the heartache and the hardship that this world will throw at you. But we know who is. Jesus is. Jesus wept over Lazarus' death. He wept over unbelief. He swept drops of blood in Gethsemane. He entered into our suffering and Jesus wept over it. He stared down every ounce of adversity and suffering that you would ever face in your life as He looked at the cross. And He wept over it. And ultimately, His weeping ends our weeping and gives way to victory because the Lord has once and for all already heard the weeping, look at verse 8, of His righteous one. Oh, I'm weeping now, but God has already seen my weeping. He's already heard my adversity. He's already carried it to the cross and He's nailed it there. And there is a day when my weeping ends, not because I did anything to end my weeping, but because the Savior of the world came and the tense of these verbs suggest that Jesus has once and for all wept for you. There's an end to your weeping because the righteous one came and he bore your suffering and your trial and your heartache and your sin and he bore it to Calvary and he wept over it and because that is true we can say with John the Revelator in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, Behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God will be among them and he will wipe away every tear on their eyes. And there will be no more, no longer any death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. New things have come. Our tears today are not in vain because Christ did not die in vain. We long for and we weep for the world that He died to give us and the sin that has ensnared you this week. Weep over it and then remember Christ has ended it. The co-worker that ridiculed you this week Weep over it and then remember that God has heard your weeping in Christ and He might even use your weeping to bring them from being enemies of God to those who are rescued by God. The tears that you cry in faith over the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of your home, your life, your work, your family, your physical body, they're not going to last much longer. But they just might be the tears through which the heart of Jesus is seen and His victory is extended even to our enemies. Because there's coming a day when the enemies of God who rejoice over the calamity that faces those who are allied with God, there's coming a day in a moment when God turns to us that their seeming victory turns to shame. Might it be, might it be that God would use the weeping of His people to show to the world the reality of the suffering we face has been ended by the righteous one who wept and died for us that our weeping would die with our death but rejoicing would remain forever through the resurrection.
Jesus has wept over your brokenness. And he's borne your burdens to Calvary, where he suffered and bled and died. And on the third day, weeping becomes rejoicing for all who know Christ the King. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. Lord, we confess that there are times that it feels so incomplete. God, we know on the authority of your word, because of your promises in your word, we know, God, that, that your victory is already final. It's as sure as the resurrection. It's as sure as your ascension and your promise to come again. It's as sure as the, the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells each one of us. But God, we, we confess to you this morning, it's so easy to be distracted and discouraged and sidelined by our circumstances. So we ask you, God, in this, in this moment, to help us to know how we ought to respond. Lord, some this morning just needed permission to say this, this really stinks. Others this morning, God, needed to be reminded that though we are weeping now, our weeping has already ended. Because of Christ who went to the cross. Lord, I, I don't know the needs in this room, but you do. And your Holy Spirit certainly does. So we ask God that you would move and work as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.